Well, good afternoon. I am so excited to see you back. We have had a couple questions. They weren't put in the basket. They were asked to me directly, and they were good questions. And so I think they're worth repeating. So I'm going to share them with you. A person asked me, well, Herb, if yesterday, if what you shared is true, uh, is there still a need for us to repent and confess and believe? Yes, but I want to be very careful. When we talk about God as the violated party and all that we said yesterday takes place in a violated person's heart, you don't need to confess, repent, and believe in order to change his heart about you. Do you understand that? You don't need to repent in order for Him to forgive you in His heart. Now, when you sin, do you set in motion shame and guilt and condemnation inside your own heart? Do you? Yes. And what happens if you're not freed from that? It goes on and on until finally, what does it do? It destroys you. This is what God's trying to save us from. Do we need to repent and confess and and, and have faith in order to be freed from that? To have that cleansed? Yes! And that is why repentance and confession is vital. But understand, repentance and confession only changes us. It doesn't change God. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, it is a pure biblical truth to say that God has forgiven Everyone, the world, whether they've repented or not, in his heart, correct? Has he forgiven them in the sense that they're cleansed of shame and guilt? Are are there many people that even though God's forgiven them in his heart, they're still under a weight of guilt and shame and condemnation out there today? Yes. And so has he forgiven them in that sense? No. No. Does he want to? Is he ready to? But it requires their involvement because it's something that's going on inside of them, not inside of him. Do you understand where I'm coming from this afternoon? You see, some people say, well, Herb, it just sounds like once saved, always saved. Let me say this. If a person is lost in the end, It won't be because they didn't do enough to convince God to let them off the hook. It'll be because they held on to the shame and the guilt that crushed out their life in the very end. Do you understand what I'm saying? Whatever you want to label that doesn't matter to me. Let's pursue it a little further. Take your hand out with me. We're going to conclude today our section On, on emotional healing. Tuesday night, we're going to begin moving into that second ray of sunshine. Do you remember which one that was? Health. That's right. Fitness and health. Have you experienced some quality, some stage, some beginnings of emotional healing this weekend as you've began to see God differently? Anyone here seeing God a little bit differently? Anybody? How many would like to experience that in the, in the area of health and fitness as well, not just emotionally? So that's where we're going to start Tuesday night. Make sure you don't miss it. But I want you to look in Genesis 3, 7 through 11, 
talking about Adam and Eve, once they had sinned, it says the eyes of both of them were, what does it say? Opened. And they knew that they were naked. And it says they sewed fig leaves together and made loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of the Lord, the Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife, they, what does it say? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. I want you to take your pencils or your pens with me this afternoon and circle that word presence. That's going to become more meaningful to you as we continue through these texts today. It says, the Lord called out to man and said, where are you? Now I want you to notice. Had Adam and Eve sinned, had a violation occurred, so who in, in this story is the violated party? This is God. And who is the violators? Adam and Eve or us. That's right. Or us. Humanity. Now, when we sin, once again, what do we set in motion inside of us? Shame, guilt, condemnation. Let's sum it all up by the word, the letter T. Torment. Psychological and emotional torment. How many would agree with me? If you agree, say yes. We assume because of this torment that we're feeling, whether you agree with this or not, we're not saying it's right or wrong. We're just saying how we feel. Sometimes we feel like God is condemning us because of what we've done. Anyone ever wrestled with feeling like God condemns you over something? Or that God is angry at us. Have you ever felt like God was angry with you over something? You see, this is where most people wrestle. And once again, the motive, the reason most people repent and confess is to try to change what they think is here rather than what is here. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? Here comes God. And it's the clearest example in real life of what I was yesterday. Is God harboring this towards Adam and Eve? How do we know? Well, okay, but how do we know from the story? Oh, he could be condemned and angry and still be looking for him, couldn't he? How do we know? He shows up and says what? And does the scriptures give voice inflection? How do we know God didn't show up and say, Adam, where are you? How do we know this isn't what was going on? How do we know from the story? Yeah, because if that's what God was doing, how would the rest of the story have ended? What would Adam and Eve had done if God came up and came to them and was angry and was condemning and was looking for them in fury? What would Adam and Eve have done? I don't know what you would have done. I would have found a better hiding place, wouldn't you? But we know that Adam and Eve heard something in the tone of God's voice that made them feel as if it was safe to come out of hiding. If this had been present, would they have felt like it was safe to come out of hiding? No, but they come out and notice what it says. Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was what? Afraid. Why were they afraid? Because God was angry? Because God was condemning them? They were afraid because of that. 
Are you with me? All of this torment. Anybody here ever sinned? Anybody? Have you ever felt that before? And does it make you think sometimes this is true when really it's not? So we run and hide from him. And then God, I love what God asks next. You're naked? Who told you you were naked? What is implied in this question? Who told you you were naked? Who did they feel like those feelings of nakedness were coming from? Who did they think they were coming from? God. But God's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Am I thumbing you with this? Am I saying you're naked? Oh, Adam and Eve, did you eat of the tree which I commanded you not to? Did he not know whether or not they had eaten of the tree? Of course he knew. Why is he asking then? Because he's wanting them to learn the reason they're feeling this is because they ate of the tree, not because he's against them. What they did is setting in motion all of this. It's not coming from him. Now, once again, don't misunderstand me. Does God convict sinners? But does he condemn them? Does he condemn them? No. Genesis 2, 16 through 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will... What does it say? Now I want you to notice first what it does not say. Does God say, Listen... Do what I say or I'll kill you. Is that what he says? He says, if you do this, you'll die. Can I teach you one more time? Just a little bit of Greek this afternoon. Can I do that? A little Greek never killed anybody. A little Hebrew once did, but a little Greek never did. Okay? The Hebrew, the Old Testament was not only written in Hebrew. There's also a translation of it into the Greek. It's called the Septuagint. You don't need to remember any of that. What I'm sharing with you today is that in the Greek language, there are three voices. You'll recognize these from English as well. There's an active voice, a middle voice, and a passive voice. Those apply to the verbs, the verbs only. Active voice of a verb simply means that the subject of that sentence is doing the action of the verb. Tom hit the ball. The word, the verb hit would be in the active voice. Is the subject doing the action? What if we say Tom was hit by the ball? Is the subject doing the action or receiving the action? Receiving it. That would be that verb hit then would be in the passive voice. Got it? But if it said, Tom hit himself, which one is it? It's both action and passive. It's middle voice. Are you with me? He both does the action and receives the action. Are you with me this afternoon? It's interesting, this, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament... The verb here, die, at the end of this verse, you will surely die, is not active or passive. 
its middle. In other words, you will be both doing and receiving the action yourself. Do we know any other verses in the Bible that would confirm this? Look at Proverbs 8.36. Notice what Solomon said. He who sins against me injures... What does it say? Is he doing the action? Is he receiving the action? Both. How do we injure ourselves? Remember when we sin, we set in motion psychological and emotional torment, not to mention all the other things we set in motion, but psychologically, this is what we set in motion. And what would happen if you were left right now to bear the full weight psychologically and emotionally of everything you had ever done wrong? Can you imagine that? If in one moment you could be conscious of everything you've ever done wrong, what would that be like for you psychologically and emotionally? Could you bear it? What would it do to you? Let's look at it a little further. In James 1, 14 through 15, it says, Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and what? Enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to, what does it say? Sin. And sin, when it is full grown... It brings forth what? Death. Understand, if you were left to bear the full weight, psychologically and emotionally, of everything you had ever done wrong, is God up there saying, do what I say or I'll kill you? Or is he saying, listen, you are setting in motion events that if I am not able to save you from them, those things themselves will crush out your life. Do you understand the difference of what I'm saying this afternoon? There's a man in human history who claimed to be God. He came and he took upon himself everything we'd ever done wrong. And did it set in motion torment, psychological and emotional torment in his psyche? Who are we talking about? And what happened to Jesus when he bore that torment, what did it do to him? It broke his heart and he died. What would happen if you and I were left to bear this? Sin, when it is full grown, it brings forth what? Death. You see, God didn't sit up in heaven one day and say, you know all this boring stuff over here? I think I'm going to make that holy, just, and good. And all this fun stuff and exciting stuff over here, I'm going to make that wrong. And if you don't play by my rules, I'm going to pounce on you. That's not how it works at all. Do people sometimes think that's how it works? I used to have a friend in high school. She said, Herb, I can't serve a God who says, serve me or I'll kill you. You know what I said? I couldn't either. But that's not what God's saying at all. He's saying, you're dying. Let me show you how to live. Is that a different God? Yes. Now, James 1, this is how I think it works. Sorry, 1 Timothy 4. Notice what it says. That bodily discipline is only of a little profit. What does he mean by that? 
What does he mean by that? That exercise really doesn't do you much good? Is that what the Bible teaches? Did it do him much good back then? Did bodily exercise do them much good back then? Did they have elliptical machines and weight sets and treadmills and Bowflexes? Did bodily exercise do them much good back then? No, because they didn't have microwaves. They didn't have cars. They didn't have... Are you with me? Life just to live required enough physical energy that there wasn't a real need for them to exercise. Are you with me? That's what Paul's saying here. He says bodily exercise, bodily discipline, it's only of a little profit, but godliness. Oh, I love this. Godliness is profitable for how many things? Does that include emotional healing? Does that include fitness and health? Does that include spiritual fulfillment? Does that include mental development? What about financial freedom? Is godliness really profitable for all things? And some will say, well, sure, to get to heaven. But notice what it says. It holds promise for the what? Present life and also the life to come. Godliness is beneficial for now and later, is it not? Why? Because this is how it really works. God didn't sit up there and say the boring stuff's good and the fun stuff's bad. God up in heaven, when he was creating all of this, he saw in giving freedom, he saw that there would now be a potential for things that would bring pain and heartache and sorrow and death. And he also saw that there would be potential for things that bring life and joy and happiness. And all of this stuff that brings pain, he looked at that and he said, that's wrong. That's evil. And all this stuff that brings joy and life and happiness, he said, this stuff is good and right and holy. What makes the difference between something being a sin or something being righteous? Because God says so? Something's not wrong because God says so. God says so because it's wrong. And what makes it wrong? The events that it sets in motion. The results of those behaviors. Do you understand what I'm saying this afternoon? If you're with me, say yes. We find this over and over again in the scriptures. Notice Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he what? Sows. And some misinterpret this verse. They say, see, see, it says it right there. If you sow, God's going to get you. God can't be mocked. You're going to be re- you reap what you sow. You ever heard that sermon before? Anybody ever heard that presentation? But notice what it said. Notice the imagery. A man reaps what he what? He sows. If you take a seed, a carrot seed, and you put that in the ground... Does a plastic bag from Walmart drop out of the sky filled with carrots? Where do the carrots come from? What if you sowed an apple seed? Would you get carrots? You get whatever you what? You sow. And where do you get it from? What you sow. 
He says, the one who sows to please his sinful nature, underline this, will from that nature reap what? Destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit will from the Spirit reap what? Wouldn't it be neat if you could figure out, as we look at those five areas in this seminar, whether you desire emotional healing, health, spiritual fulfillment, mental development, or financial peace, whether you desire any of that, wouldn't it be neat if you could figure out which things in life set in motion motion intrinsic positive results in all those areas. And you could learn to stay away from all those things that intrinsically bring negative results in all those areas. How many would be interested in a list like that? Where you just do this stuff and it's going to set in motion a result that you can be guaranteed on. Well, I'd like to share that list with you. Because God has given it to us. It's called godliness. It's profitable for how much? All things. But I want to convince you first that the opposite of godliness is not just not profitable. It's destructive to how many things? All things. Not just in this life, but and in the life to come. Let me show you. In Romans 7, Paul speaks here. He says, while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions. Anybody ever experienced those before? Anybody ever had those before? Sinful passions. They were aroused by the law. Now notice in what way they were aroused. They were at work in our members to bear, what does that say? Fruit. Mind the typo. There's supposed to be a space there. To bear fruit. And then notice that fruit is for what? Let's break this down. The law. What is the law? What is God's law? Ten Commandments? Anything else? Yes? His principles. Okay. His principles of intrinsic success. Yes, good. What, anything else? Okay, good, good, good. Anything else? Boundaries? Anything else? God's law. Yes, the law is simply, you can sum all of that up, a law is simply a reflection of who? Of God himself. It's a reflection of him. So when we come in contact with his laws, his principles, who else are we coming in contact with? Just a bunch of rules? Who are we coming in contact with? Him. And when we come in contact with God... If God were to show up here right now today and you were to see him in all of his beauty and all of his glory and all of his array, how many think that'd be really cool? Some of you are like, I don't know about that. Yeah, because what would be the result? In encountering God in his fullness, whom else would you begin to see in that moment? Who would stick out by contrast? Like a sore thumb. You would not only see how beautiful he is, you would begin to become keenly aware of how out of harmony you are with that beauty, would you not? So in seeing God, we would also see our sin. And in seeing him like we've never before seen, we would also see ourselves like we have never before seen, which means what would we begin to experience like we've never before? 
What does sin produce? Torments. And notice, if we were left to bear the full weight of that torment, what would it do to us? It would destroy us. You see, it says here that while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, they became aroused by the law to bear a, do you remember? A fruit that would lead to what? Do you understand what Paul's saying here so far? Can you see it? He goes on, he says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Is this the problem over here? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I was alive once apart from the law. But when the law came, sin revived and I what? Died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be what to me? Death. For sin. Who? What's the culprit here? Sin. Sin. Finding opportunity in the commandment deceived me and sin by the law did what killed me what's killing paul here sin he says did that which is good then bring death to me he says what by no means it was what sin working or producing death in me Through what is what? Talk to me so we can go home today. Through what is what? Through what is good. I want to be very careful here because remember those religious folk we've been talking about in this series? Religious folk have spent years trying to define what sin is and what sin isn't. Have you ever been appalled at what religious folks call a sin? And condemn you for. Anyone ever been there? Be honest. Have you ever been there before? Ostracized you for something that you knew wasn't wrong. But they felt it was wrong. That's one side of the ditch. The other side of the ditch is to be involved with stuff that really is sin. But having a refusal to believe that it is. Both ditches. How do we keep out of both sides? How do you go down the middle? Instead of looking at what's sin and what isn't and trying to search it through that, start looking at things and the results of those things. Are you with me? Are you with me? Because if a result is destructive to you, then which category does it fit into? Sin. If a result is beneficial and life-giving to you, which category does it fit into? Godliness. We don't need to make up religious lists. Are you with me? It's practical. It affects our everyday life in all five of those areas. Look with me to Exodus 33. I want to prove this even further to you. In Exodus 33, 18, it says, And when Moses said, Please show me your glory. It says that God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion, he said. But you cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and what? Why does he say that? Is God's face just a big secret? I'd show you, but I'd have to kill you. Is that what God's saying? Because if we were to see God's face, what would we also see? What would that produce? And what would that end in? In death. End in. And yes, you got it. 
It would crush out our life. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. In Isaiah 6, notice what Isaiah goes through. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling his temple. Seraphim stood above him, each wing have, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations and the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woohoo! I have always wanted to see this is that what isaiah says no he says what who is he seeing what's he becoming aware of and he says woe is me i am ruined because i am a man of what unclean lips i live among a people of unclean lips and for mine eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts I don't care what any Christian has ever told you. I want you to look at this next verse. It says, the kings of the earth, when Jesus comes back. Have you ever been afraid of Jesus coming back? Anybody here ever been afraid of Jesus coming back? We talk about the end of the world and everything coming apart. And God's going to come back to this planet. And people are like, oh, just hold on a little longer, God. I'm not ready. Have you ever been there? It's because, do you remember the tour and the Ted we put up there? We think that God's harboring condemnation and anger. And you better be ready. Isn't that where we're at? But notice it says the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, man, they hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the, what does it say? Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb? Have you ever thought about that before? What is a lamb? It's a sheep. What kind of sheep? It's a baby sheep. Have you ever run from the anger of a baby sheep? I mean, how bad can it get? Do you understand? Now, don't get me wrong. Is there something going on inside of them at this moment that's going to crush out their life? Yes. But is there something in the heart of the Lamb that desires to crush out their life? Do you see why God hates sin so much and He wants to show you how to live a godly life? It's not so that He'll love you more. It's so you can be freed of all this stuff that intrinsically hurts you. Religious people for years have taught, well, if you do this, God's going to get you. Have you ever heard that? Anybody here ever heard that? And I ask you, is this death that comes in the very end, is that intrinsic to the sin itself or is it imposed arbitrarily by God? Are you hearing me? Notice what it says. Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one is what? Why are they running if there's no condemnation and anger in his heart? Because they've got a guilty conscience. They're seeking to flee that torment. Now some will say, well, Herb, doesn't the Bible say at times that if we do something, God will get us? 
Anybody here have a mom? I've got a mom. Whether they've passed on or not, you've still got a mom. You're going to see him again one day. So be good. No, I'm just kidding. That's just for my mom. My mom's still with us, but I remember my mom was a tough mom. She was shorter than me. I'm 5'5". Five five. She got to 5 and 3 quarters. She always wanted to make it to 5'1", but she only made it to 5 and 3 quarters. And although she is almost 5 inches shorter than me, she is one short little woman you do not want to mess with. I remember when I was 14 years of age, she caught me smoking on the back porch. Now, I had a liberal mother. She believed that every child needed to discover for themselves what was right and wrong. And they needed to find out from experimenting what the results of different decisions were. And she just needed to sit back and kind of facilitate that. You got her parenting philosophy? Well, this philosophy was tested when she caught me smoking. She sat me down. And I could see her wrestling with it. She sat me down and she said, Herb, I know you needed to find out for yourself what smoking was all about. I know you needed to find out what, 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 what was involved in all of this. But she looked at me and she said, if you haven't caught the lesson by the first experiment, she said, if I ever catch you smoking again, you don't need to worry about lung cancer. <laughs> she looked, looked me square in the eye and she said, I'll kill you myself. I never touched cigarettes again. Now, if you're a smoker here today, this is not about you, okay? I'm bringing it up and you're beginning to feel some of this, aren't you? Just because I brought it up. It's not about... God loves you whether you smoke or not, does he not? And you are welcome here today whether you smoke or not. But notice, as a 14-year-old kid, could I attach the decisions that I was making with the intrinsic lung cancer that's going to come 50 years down the line? Could I associate those two together very well as a 14-year-old boy? No. So what did my mom have to do? She had to step in and give me a close-up. She had to say, listen... Smoking equals dying. Do you got the picture? And did she have to temporarily become the source of that death in my thinking for me to connect the two? Did she have to do that? Yes. But what does she want in the long term? I am 32 years old now. And today I still don't smoke. And do you know why I don't smoke today? Because I'm scared of my mom. That's right. No. No, I'm out of the house. I've grown up. I'm not under my mom's rules anymore. I've realized that it's not her that I need to be afraid of. It's the smoking itself that's going to kill me. Do you see the difference? Do you see what I'm saying this afternoon? Are there times in places of the Bible, like in the Old Testament... Where God has had to step in and in our thinking be the source of death. And in our thinking has he had to end life at times to step in and be that parent. If he had stepped in back at Sinai and said, you keep doing it, it'll hurt you, it'll kill you. What would they have said back then? 
Well, what would I have said at age 14 if my mom said, you keep doing this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill you one day? What would I have said? No, it won't. She doesn't know anything. So God has at times had to step in and impose negative results. And in our thinking, we thought he's the one we need to be afraid of. Has he not? Have we not? But what does God want? Like every other parent, what does God want? He wants us to grow up and realize that in reality, it's not him we need to be freed of. It's not him we need to be saved from. It's not him we need to be afraid of. It's sin. You see, read with me. Our time is about ended for this first session. But I want you to read 2 Thessalonians 1.9. It's at the top of your third page. It says, These shall be punished with everlasting what? Destruction from the, what does it say? The presence of the Lord and from the glory of His what? Of His power. Circle that word presence. Have you seen it before? What was it that caused Adam and Eve to be afraid? His presence. What was it that causes the wicked in the end to run and hide? His presence. What is it that causes us to feel psychological and emotional torment? It's God's what? Presence. But notice, why does His presence cause us to feel this way? Because there's something wrong in His presence? Something destructive about His presence? Angels hang out in His presence all day long and they're not destroyed. But what's the difference between angels and us? It's our sin. It's our sin. Let me ask you again. Let's read it from the Young's Living Translation. Who shall suffer justice? Destruction age-during. From the face of the Lord and from the glory of His strength. I want you to be honest with me today. Is there anybody else here who reads this verse and thinks that sounds scary? Is there anybody here that thinks that sounds scary? Am I the only one that thinks this sounds scary? And this verse, hear me, it should strike fear into the heart of every single one of us. But understand that in the midst of that fear, it's not God that we should be afraid of. What is it? Sin. Are you hearing me? We should fear sin with a sobering fear. But we should not be afraid of God. Do you have a question? We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. I promise. Let me just show you a couple more verses before we end today. In Matthew 1.21, do you see it there in the middle of that third page? It says, she will bear a what? A son. And you shall call his name what? Jesus. For he shall save his people from an angry God. Is that what it says? No. It's not this we need saved from, is it? It's this. Notice, 
Hebrews 9.14, How much more then will the blood of Christ cleanse God's heart from all the anger and condemnation He feels towards us? Is that what it says? How much more will it cleanse our conscience from these acts that lead to what? Death. 1 Peter 3.21 Baptism, which now does what? It now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from your body. It's not anybody here ever been baptized before? Can I see a raise of hands? Anybody here ever been baptized before? Man, that is the weirdest looking event. Have you ever thought about it? I mean, people gather in front of a church and basically take a bath. Don't they? It's a giant bathtub. That's what they thought about it in, in, in John's day and Jesus' day. Well, how do I enter into the kingdom of God? People in Jesus and John would say, go down to the river. Well, what did they go to the river for? To get clean. They cleaned everything at the river. If you've ever been to third world country, you know they do every, everything at the river. Got it? They don't have indoor plumbing like we do here. Jesus said, go down to the river and baptismo. In the Greek, submerse yourself in the water. Take a bath is what he was basically saying. And you can imagine someone would say, well, what, does God think I stink? No, it's not about the removal of dirt from your body. But notice, it's an appeal to God for a clear or clean what? Part of emotional healing is not... Just seeing how much God has forgiven you and being able to forgive others. Is that part of it? But part of that emotional healing comes from seeing how much God has forgiven you. And you now being able to forgive yourself. Do you understand what I mean by those words? God wants to cleanse all that shame and guilt that's inside of you because of your past mistakes. And we're holding on to it. We don't want to let it go. How many would like to let it go today? How many would like to have this completely eradicated from your psychological experience? For you to be clean, for your conscience to be so clean that you walk away from today feeling as if you've never even sinned even by a thought. How many would like to feel like that? That is the beginning of all emotional healing. Not only to be forgiven by God. We talked about that yesterday. Correct? Has God already forgiven us? Yes. How many has he already forgiven in his heart? Everyone. But does he want to cleanse your conscience of shame and guilt as well? Does he want to bring us to repentance today? Does he want to bring us to confession today? Does he want to bring us to a living and viable faith today where we walk away from this place completely cleansed of everything we've ever done wrong? Does he want that? Do you want that? We're going to break for a few minutes. I want to share with you that God wants to replace your sin today with something else. And that something else will not create torment. It'll create psychological and emotional peace. And one day when you see him standing in this, 
you won't feel tormented and run and hide and be crushed by that torment. It'll cause you to live eternally with Him. But hear me. This right here doesn't just unlock for you blessings in the life to come. Jesus came so that we would also have life more abundantly today as well. And that's what I want to share with you. Let's pray. Precious Father, be with us as we continue this subject. Father, thank you for the way you're helping us see things differently. Lord, my prayer is that in every aspect of our lives, these principles would come to fruition. That they would truly set us free. And that we would be living a different life. In your precious name we pray all this. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy your refreshments. There's cookies. There's drinks. And we'll be back in about 10 or 15 minutes. We'll let you know.